All right, let's praise God for what he's doing. God gets the credit and the glory, but God does throughout human history choose to use people to do his work. So I want to say thank you to all of you who are part of what God is doing here. I was doing the math on this, 326 people who've placed their faith in Christ. They've been set free from addictive behavior or sin, and they've been adopted into the family of God. And I was doing the math, and I realized I divided the number of weeks, 326, we have 6.9, so almost 7 Christians uh, per week who are placing their faith in Christ here. Isn't that amazing? And, uh, you know... With Christmas Eve coming up, we'll have dozens more. Last year at Christmas Eve, we had 7,600 people who attended our Christmas Eve services. And I know many of you are already praying about who you might be able to invite to that. And so my kind of personal prayer is that with the people who come at Christmas Eve, that we'll have more than one brand new Christian for every day of the year, more than 365 I don't know. Some of you I, I know grew up not going to church anywhere. I grew up going to a little church of about 500 people. And so when I see that number 326, and I think that's like a whole church coming to Christ here every year, and it is because of you guys who are serving and praying and giving and making it all happen. Well, I hope you've been having a good Easter. I, uh, Easter, my goodness. <laughs> they talk about Freudian slips, and I did spend the last week planning stuff for Easter, so I guess that's what that was. But I hope you've had a good Thanksgiving weekend, okay? We're eating turkey right now. I hope you've survived the Black Friday shopping that you didn't get stampeded. I hope you've enjoyed catching up with relatives or at least that you've survived it. Uh, many of you know I grew up in Michigan, so when it comes to football, I'm a University of Michigan football fan. And I married an Ohio girl whose family are diehard Ohio State fans. So her parents now live in Arizona, but they flew in for the weekend under the pretext of Thanksgiving. <laughs> they actually came to watch the Michigan-Ohio State game and like every year, rub it in that Ohio State demolishes Michigan every year. So yesterday about halftime when I could just see how things were going, we have a Saturday night service. So I, to my father-in-law, I was like, yeah, I think I got to go into the office and start getting my message ready. I just did not want to sit there and endure watching that whole game with him. Well, no matter how your turkey weekend has gone, I can guarantee you it's gone better than some people. Let's see a raise of hands of anyone who's ever deep fried or known or seen someone try to deep fry a turkey. Okay, you can tell the people usually by the singed eyebrows. I found a video of some turkey fails. Go ahead and have a good laugh as we check this out. The annual Thanksgiving fire. Real slow. <laughs> oh no! Oh, uh oh, call the fire department. Nine one one, call nine. I don't know. Just you know, put the whole lid over the whole thing. Kill, kill the fire. You don't want no air. No air. No oxygen. Turkey's too big. Everybody ready? We're going to fry turkey now. Kirk, you're burning the head! 
So, so no matter how your turkey weekend's going, I bet it's better than some of those people. I just, I love the, the mom who is trying to get the turkey, even though she's about to burn herself to death on the oven and the, and the dad's trying to shoo her awake. She's like, I put so many hours into this turkey. I'm not letting it go. I also love the one where it says a special day on the, on the little video. Well, according to FEMA, the Federal Emergency Management Group, an uh, average of 2,400 American homes light on fire every year because of turkey accidents. 25 injuries per year, $19 million of property loss. Point being, if you didn't burn your house down, you've had a better Thanksgiving than 2,400 other American families. So today I want to give you the gift of joy, the gift of perspective. And to do that, we're going to wrestle with a real question that we all face, and it's this. In the never-ending battles of life, how do we regain our perspective and our joy? In the never-ending battles, I don't know what battle you're facing right now. Maybe you're facing a battle with a toddler who's strong-willed. Maybe you're facing a battle in your marriage. Maybe you're facing a battle in your health or a battle with a behavior in your own life that you're not proud of. Maybe you're facing a battle in your workplace. Every day when you go to work, it seems like you're showing up for war. Maybe you're facing a battle with your health. If you're like me, some days it seems like life can just turn into one battle after another. You know, you, you finally kind of solve a problem in one area and then you turn around and now there's a problem in another area. Can anyone relate to that? Anyone know how that feels? And you know, part of adult life especially seems like I have this long list of really good important things I should get to on the house and and in other areas of life. And it's like once I finally have a break between all these battles, that's all the stuff I'm going to get done. But there's never a break. Can anyone relate to that? Well, today God gives us the story of a person who knew what it was like to fight one battle after another back to back to back. This is a person who was wrongly accused. In fact, at one point in his life, he was attacked and he had to run for his life from a false accuser. This was a king of a nation in a time when there were physical wars. So he actually often had to lead his people into physical battle, but he also had battles in his family. He had battles of temptation, battles of failure, battles of leadership. And just like you and me, this person, he was not perfect, but he was a person who sought God consistently. And I have to believe if you're here today that you're seeking God. So let's look at the life of this person who, between battles, at a moment where one battle has ended, he knows the next one's about to begin. He should be sharpening the swords, rallying the troops. Instead, he does something very unexpected. He pauses. He pauses, and we're going to see that he actually has the first Thanksgiving. Now, this was long before the pilgrims. This is about 3,000 years ago. But he's going to pause, and in our passage, 1 Chronicles 16, in verse 3, it actually says that he sent all the people out with cakes of fruit and nuts. So these were the first fruit cakes, okay? 
The first holiday fruitcakes were in Israel about 3,000 years ago. Maybe you've heard of David the shepherd boy who had a little stone and a slingshot and, and he used it. And because he believed in God, God empowered him to slay a giant named Goliath who was from a people group called the Philistines who were persecuting God's people. Well, that little boy, David, as he continued seeking God, he grew up and he actually became the king of those people called Israel. And here we pick up the story in verse 7 of 1 Chronicles 16. David has distributed the fruitcakes. He said, let's pause between our battles and give thanks to God. And here's what happens. On that day, David gave Asaph and his fellow Levites, those are like the worship leaders, this song of thanksgiving to the Lord. And here's the song. Give thanks to the Lord and proclaim his greatness. Let the whole world know what God has done. Sing to him, yes, sing his praises. Tell everyone about his wonderful deeds. Exult or be happy about, excited about God's holy name. Rejoice, you who worship the Lord. Search for the Lord and for his strength. Continually seek him. Remember the wonders that he has done and performed, his miracles and the rulings he has given. So how can we restore our perspective, recover our joy? I mean, if you're like me, there's those times where you, you kind of mentally know, okay, I know I wasn't born in a time of famine. I know, you know, I know I have a lot to be thankful for. I know I live in one of the wealthiest, most free times in history. And I know that up here. But in the battles, the back-to-back -back battles, I, just, I lose that perspective. I, say, yeah, I know there's a lot to be thankful for, but I don't feel very thankful. And I start to lose my joy. And how does this passage answer the question of how do you get that back? The answer is this. Thanking God restores my perspective and it revives my joy. When you take the time to pause from the battle and to thank God in a meaningful way, it will restore your perspective and it will revive your joy. Well, the question you might ask is, well, how does this work in real life? Because I've had moments where I'm like, okay, God, I get it. You know, my, my kids are healthy right now. I have a house to live in. You know, I get it that I have things to be thankful for, but I still don't feel it. Maybe that's where you're at. You think, well, how does this actually work? To answer that, I want to contrast two scenarios for you that you can relate to. The first scenario is that of a kid opening a Christmas present or a birthday present, and it's not exactly what they wanted, and there's a bunch of other presents to open, and they open it, and they start to move on to the next one, and as a good parent or grandparent, we slow them down, and we say, don't forget to say thank you, and they go to that friend at their birthday party or that grandparent, and they say, thank you, and it's a little bit hollow, and it's a little bit forced, but you know, it's a good habit, and we try to teach them to do it, but really, they're on to the next thing. You guys know that scenario? And I think when we see this principle, thanking God restores my perspective, we can kind of feel like that kid because it's like, God, there's some things I've opened in my life that I'm not all that excited about. And so thanks, on to the next thing. I want you to contrast that situation with another one. There's a true story in Jesus' life. Jesus was God on earth. And there's a true story where there were 10 social outcasts. They had a skin condition a contagious skin condition. In the ancient world, they didn't understand germ theory or modern medicine, but they knew enough to know that this skin condition called leprosy, it was contagious. 
And so these lepers, they were social outcasts. They wouldn't have been allowed to come into an event like this. They couldn't go to weddings. They couldn't go to family reunions. They actually had to walk around yelling unclean so that people wouldn't touch them and get their sickness. And as Jesus often did, he broke all the social rules and norms, all the barriers of class and society to touch the untouchable, to love the outcasts. And Jesus touched these 10 lepers and he miraculously healed them of their condition. And when he did, they ran away excited and happy that they're healed. And the true story goes that of the 10 who were healed, only one took the time to stop and say, I should go back and thank Jesus. And that one out of the 10 with tears in his eyes went back to Jesus and said, thank you for taking the time to change my life. And that's the kind of thanksgiving that restores our perspective and renews our joy. I want to help you today by giving you three easy steps toward that kind of thanksgiving that restores perspective. And here's the first one. Take the time to remind myself that God has given every good thing in my life. Take the time to remind myself all the good things in my life are from God. There's a verse in the book of James that says that every good and perfect gift comes down from God, who's the father, the source of light, of the son of life. I don't know if any of you are like me in this way, but if I have 100 things that are going right in my life and one thing that's going wrong, I tend to focus in on the wrong one. And it tends to define my mood and the way I look at life. And I really have to discipline myself to count the 100 good things. I learned this in a really tangible way. I used to work as an investigative journalist and I started studying Jesus' life. It changed my life. I started seeing it change other people's lives. And eventually I surrendered and said, okay, God, if you want me to spend my life telling people about you instead of writing for newspapers, I'll do that. And so right after I prayed that, there was this little church of 40 people that asked me to come and preach to them. It was my third time ever speaking in public. And then they said, we want to vote for you to be our pastor. And I'm like, okay, go for it. You know, it's 26 or 27, I had zero experience. And they voted, and it was 39 to 1 for, for me to come. So my wife and I prayed about it. We went to this church, and, and it was part of our story. But I have to be honest. I spent the first two years there, 39 to 1. And I was looking out every Sunday, <laughs> trying to figure out, like, who's that one? Who didn't like me? Isn't that human nature? Uh, and I mean, I saw it, and I also saw that if I focused in on that one, it dragged me down. And if I would focus on the 39, it lifted me up. And the same is true in our lives. And so part of Thanksgiving is pausing, and it's not being, uh, it's not lying to ourselves and saying there's nothing hard in our lives, but it's pausing to count the 39. It's pausing to identify the good. And to remind ourselves that God is not the author of evil. Yes, there's pain and difficulty in our lives because of other people's choices, sometimes because of our own, because of Satan and evil supernatural forces. But God is the author of every good and perfect thing. And so we take the time to count the 39 and to connect the dots spiritually. Say, that child that I love, God, that was a gift from you. The fact that I have a warm home, that's a gift from you. The fact that I know you've told me you exist and you've reached out to me, that's a gift from you. I wonder what is one good thing in your life today, just one, 
where you can connect the dot back to God. Just think of it right now. If you're taking notes, you can jot it down or you can text it, email it to yourself or something. What's one thing, good thing in your life where you can connect the dots back to God? In the story we read from the Bible, King David pauses to give thanks to God for these victories. I was reading more of the story around the verses that we read, and as I was reading, I read through the battles that led up to that moment. And I came across this really interesting verse. This probably happened a couple months before this Thanksgiving that David has. And it's a time when he and the people are under attack. It's in chapter 14, two chapters before where we read. Here's the Philistines. That's Goliath's people group. They're kind of like the villains of the nation of Israel this time. They arrived and they made a raid in the valley of David's territory, Rephaim. And and, and I expected it to say, you know, so right away David and they all went out and they fought. But it's really interesting. In the context, it says this, that David asked God, should I go and fight against the Philistines? Will you hand them over to me? And then in the story, God says, yes, go fight against them and I'll give you the victory. And God gives them the victory. Here's the thing. This is the equivalent of you getting a text message right now. And the text says, uh, hey, there's 12 guys dressed in black breaking into your house right now. Just thought you want to know your neighbor. Okay? <laughs> and instead of jumping up and running out or calling 911 or calling your strongest friends, you pause and you say, God, what should I do? Should I go and defend my home? I mean, right, it's totally counterintuitive. I would not do this typically, right? I would just go with the common sense thing. And here's what I realized. Part of the reason that David had victories to celebrate, some of those victories were the result of him stopping and asking God what to do. David had some victories because he sought God. You know, I've noticed that we're quick to blame God for consequences in our lives that are often things that we did to ourselves. You know, God, why do you let me get that speeding ticket? You guys know that's a real one for me. <laughs> you know, we're quick to blame God when, you know, God's foot wasn't on the accelerator. That was my foot, you know. We're quick to blame him for things he didn't do, and we're slow to credit him for things that he did do. I wonder, is there a situation in your life where maybe this Thanksgiving there's some bitterness, there's some pain, and you say, why would God allow that to happen? But if you really think about it and zoom out, you never actually asked him to lead you in that situation. You know, there's a mess at work or in your marriage or somewhere else, and and, and your human nature is to blame God, but if you pause and zoom out, did you ever really ask God, should I take that job? Should I make that decision? Should I do this thing? And part of Thanksgiving is having the humility to slow down and say, okay, I'm not going to live in the past and beat myself up about those, but for the future, I'm going to seek God about what I should do. So here's an application question. In what situation do I need to seek God before moving an inch? Maybe it's someone you're dating and, and you're attracted to the person and things look great, but you know the person doesn't really seek God. They're not a Jesus follower, and you are. And have you taken the time to say, God, should I be dating someone who's not following you? Maybe it's with your retirement. Maybe it's with your finances. Maybe it's a a choice with your job. Maybe you've got an offer from another company. 
Maybe it's in your marriage or your parenting. There's some decision, there's some conversation where human nature and common sense would just say, well, yeah, just do this, it's obvious. But you take the time to seek God and, and you get his advice. And here's what I've learned. I don't do this perfectly, by the way, but whenever I do this, it gives me more victories when I look back down the road of life. I can look back on times where my common sense would have been, don't walk away from a great journalism career to make half as much money pastoring a church of 40 people. But I sought God. And, and there's times where the obvious thing isn't what he wants. And there's times where the obvious thing is, but you walk into it knowing I've prayed about this. And, and, and you very simply say, God, you know, I want to search your word. What do you say about this? Ask counsel from other people who know God and seek him. And then very often I'll say, God, I think you're saying to do this. If you don't want that, would you close the door? And there's been times in my life where when I pray that, meaning it, he just closes the door. And I say that because at Thanksgiving, you have these times you can look back and you say, God, thank you for redirecting my life. So right now, as you prepare for next year's Thanksgiving, what's a situation where you should stop and ask him to guide you before you move an inch? Well, there's a second way to restore our perspective, and it's this. We remember the specific ways that God has helped us. David, you'll notice in the verses that we read, he gets very specific. Uh, God never says, by the way, he never commands us to feel thankful. It's actually a practice of being thankful, which is about remembering specific things and giving God the credit for them. So it's not this sentimental, just be grateful, feel this warm feeling, because sometimes in life we can't stir up a warm feeling. But instead, it's remembering, recounting specific ways that God has helped. And 1 Chronicles 16, I read you a few verses from it. If you want to go deeper, you can read the whole chapter later and you'll see that David recites dozens of specific ways that God helped. And in your life, you can do this. If you don't know where to start, I'd suggest that you just start at the beginning. Where were you born? When were you born? You could actually even take a piece of paper later today. You can draw a timeline of your life, starting at the date of your birth, and you start to put on there at different dates ways that God helped you. For example, my life, when I was two years old, I came down with this rare disease called Kawasaki's disease. Kawasaki, just like the motorcycle, but not, not as cool. Not as cool. It's a, typically a, a fatal disease for young children, and uh, it was discovered by some Japanese doctor who had the same last name as the motorcycle. So, Kawasaki's disease, I was rushed to the hospital, I was supposed to die, the doctors couldn't figure out what to do. My parents gathered with their community of Jesus followers and they prayed for me. And they prayed and they prayed and they prayed and God healed me. And so when I look back at my life, it's one of those things, I, I don't remember that every day of my life, but on the days that I rest and be thankful and pause and rewind, I look back to that and I say, God, it's because of you that I'm alive. Most of us can remember times that we were almost in a car accident or times that we were laying in a hospital bed and we felt like we were gonna die or we thought we were gonna die and we prayed and God helped us. We've all got things as we look back on our lives where God sustained us through sickness. He fed us. He gave us a teacher or someone to encourage us and say, I see value in you when we didn't see value in ourselves. Even the very difficult things of our lives, 
enduring a divorce from your parents or enduring a divorce from your spouse, we look back and even those battle scars declare that God didn't leave us or forsake us. He sustained us through the difficulty. David is specific. And the more specific you get in thanking God, the more your joy will be revived and your perspective restored. Here's a picture of uh, Thomas the Train. I've got a little nephew visiting this week, and my kids had these Thomas the Trains. They're electric, and there's these plastic train tracks that I love playing with, if I'm honest. I love making these elaborate trains and getting them all going at the same time with a bunch of cars. I think I like it more than the kids. I just can't tell the kids that. Well, my kids have kind of outgrown these, so they've been sitting in a box for about a year, but this little toddler nephew, he's way into trains. So I was building a track with him, and I pulled these out, and I switched this train on, and it didn't work because the battery was dead. So I opened it up, and I pulled the battery out. I put a brand new battery in, and it still didn't work. And the reason was that the old battery, some of that battery acid had leaked, and it had corroded. So there was this green kind of corrosion um, buildup right where the battery connects to the metal. And if you've ever had that, maybe you've had that happen on your car, it doesn't matter how powerful the battery is, that corrosion is blocking the power. It's blocking the electronic contact. And so the solution is very simple. You pull the battery out, you get a sharp screwdriver, a wire brush, something metal, and you just scrape on that corrosion until it grinds down to dust and then you blow it off and then you put the battery back in, and it's good as new. And I was thinking on this idea of thanking God and the power that it has when we get specific. And I realized that, you know, as followers of Jesus, we have a power source in us, the Holy Spirit, who promises to give us joy and peace and to give us an outlook or perspective. But what happens in life is just in the battles, the back-to-back battles of life, that corrosion builds up. And the power stops connecting to our lives because of just the normal corrosion of life. And what thanksgiving is, it's a moment where we stop and we kind of grind down that corrosion. And here's the thing, the more specific you'll get in remembering God did this, God did this, God did this, everything you remember is a scrape against that corrosion. So here's two applications. First, what specific story of God coming through, can you remember? What's a specific time when God steered your car away from an accident or preserved you or provided? Maybe you remember a time when you didn't have any money to fill up the gas tank on the car. You didn't have any money for food and somehow God provided. You remember those times when you were so lonely and God has now provided some people who care for you What story will you remember? And then secondly, who will you tell the story to? Because the interesting thing in the verses we read is it doesn't say just think on these things or even write them down, which is good. It actually says tell them, declare them, share them. So for example, I know I had Kawasaki's disease when I was two because my parents have told me. They told me that story over and over growing up. I don't remember being two. I don't remember having Kawasaki's disease. But because they told me that over and over, 
I learned God's faithfulness. And this is part of our role as parents, as grandparents, and in our small groups as spiritual brothers and sisters is to declare stories of God's faithfulness to each other so that we remind each other, but it also does something for us when we do that. So what's one specific thing and who will you tell it to? We restore perspective when we remember. Third way we restore perspective is to thank God as genuinely and openly as we would thank another person who helped us. You know, God has emotions. He's not subject to his emotions or limited by them. He's not bipolar or controlled by his emotions, but he has emotions. In fact, that's why we have them, because we're made in the image of God. And so when God sees humanity at war, killing each other, hurting each other, Scripture tells us that he grieves. And when God sees people turn away from death and from sin and destruction and turn to God, brings a smile to his face. God is omnipotent. He's all-powerful. He doesn't need us. But just like my four-year-old daughter, I, I don't necessarily need her to survive, but I love her. And when she comes to me with genuine thanksgiving, it does something for me. And it's the same with your creator, God. So it's good for you, but it also brings joy to him when you genuinely thank him. This is part of the maturing process. Hopefully somewhere in your 30s or 40s, you have a moment where you realize my parents are getting older and where I used to always look to them as the provider and the strong, healthy one, the day may come where I'll be the provider and the strong, healthy one. And it's just part of this life maturing. And, and with God, there's a, a maturity as you grow in him that you move from just thanking him because, well, when I thank God, it's good for me. That's a great start. But there comes a maturity point where you realize, I want to thank God because it brings joy to him. And he has emotions too. And I just want to tell him how thankful I am and how much I love him. I've shared with you some of this true story of a guy named Nicholas Winton. Nicholas Winton lived in England during World War II. He was a successful stockbroker. And as World War II was beginning, Nazi Germany was expanding into Austria and some of the countries around Germany. And at the time, England was the world superpower and people in England thought World War II would never reach them. And it was actually during that time that Nicholas Winton was on a ski vacation in the Swiss Alps, and he heard these horrible stories about how Nazi Germans were taking Jewish people to these concentration camps. And he looked into it further, and he discovered that it was true. And he decided that he was going to do something about it. So he actually gave up his career as a stockbroker, and he, he started doing everything he could to try to rescue Jewish people out of Nazi territory and bring them to England. He actually, through some connections, got in contact with some German officers, Nazi officers, who would accept bribes. If he would pay them enough money, they would let these Jewish people out. So he starts to raise the money, and they eventually say, we can't let any of the adults out or we'll get in trouble, but if you pay us enough money, we'll let the kids out. And so Nicholas Winton starts raising money. It actually cost thousands of dollars per child. And then he had to go to the lawmakers in England, and he had to have some refugee laws changed. He had to find a family for every child he was going to rescue. Eventually, here's a picture of a bunch of these kids. They each got a tag. Each one of these kids Nicholas Winton had raised the money for, had found a family for. 
and had done the connections with the corrupt Nazi German officials to bribe them to get these kids out. And so literally, these kids' parents sometimes would be going on a train toward a concentration camp, and they'd be getting on a train to England. Throughout the course of World War II, until this got shut down, Nicholas Winton was able to rescue almost 700 children out of Nazi territory and bring them to England. After World War II ended, we, we looked and the families of these kids were all killed. These kids would have died in the concentration camps. But because of what Nicholas Winton did, they lived. Well, World War II is chaotic. There's rebuilding afterwards. These kids are now English citizens. They grow up in England. Nicholas Winton, almost like a Midwestern guy, he did this heroic thing, and he just goes back to his job. He never tells anyone, as life goes on, decade after decade, what he did. He puts the records of all these kids. He's got a book of all their names and how much each one cost. He puts it up in his attic. One day in the 1980s, his grandkids find that book and they take it to the British government and they say, do you realize this guy saved the lives of almost 700 people and now they're all grown and have kids and grandkids. There are thousands of people alive today because of Nicholas Winton. And so what they decided to do is they invited Nicholas Winton to attend the filming of a TV show. And Nicholas Winton thought he was just a member in the studio audience sitting in the front row. What he didn't know is that the whole ceremony was a big thank you to him. And as we think about thanking God, I want you to watch this moment where Nicholas Winton gets surprised with a thank you. All the letters. Back here is the list of all the children. This is Vera Diamant, now Vera Gissing. We did find her name on his list. Vera Gissing is with us here tonight. Hello, Vera. And uh, I should tell you that you are actually sitting next to Nicholas Winton. <laughs> and it was just so wonderful, so terribly, terribly touching. Is there anyone in our audience tonight who owes their life to Nicholas Winton? If so, could you stand up, please? Nicholas Winton was sitting next to someone whose life he had saved, and he didn't even know it. Some of you are sitting here today, and those 326 people who have been saved for eternity, one of them might be sitting right next to you. 
And it's because you served in Kid City on Easter that they were able to be here and hear about Jesus. Or it's because you gave to provide for a building, a facility like this, they had a place that they could come and hear about Jesus. It's because you've prayed or you've served or you've been consistent that there's this lighthouse shining in this community, giving the hope of God. And I wondered what would it feel like if one of them put their hand on your hand and said, thank you. Thank you for sacrificing so that I can have eternal life. Thank you for sacrificing so I could be set free from addiction. Thank you for sacrificing so my marriage could be restored. Could you imagine the emotion if one of them was next to you? Did you see the emotion in Nicholas Winton's eyes when that woman who he had saved as a little girl took his hand? I want to give you a, a moment to take God's hand and thank him for saving you. Maybe he saved you when you were a little girl. Maybe he saved you when you were an alcoholic. Maybe he saved you when your marriage was falling apart. Maybe he saved you when you were a little boy. We're gonna take a moment to take God by the hand and say thank you for sacrificing yourself to save me. And if you're here and you don't know that yet, God's reaching out his hand to you to say, I want to set you free. I want to give you new life. Let's pray together and just have a moment of thanking God. Father, Lord, across this room, each one of us are on a journey. And today we want to pause. We're in battles and you know the battles we face, Lord. You know every battle in each of our lives. But just like David, Lord, we're going to choose to rest. We're going to choose to look back. And we're going to recount the specific ways that you showed up. You were protecting us. You were providing for us. You were healing us. You were reaching out to us. And Lord, we remember because we need, we need to break down the corrosion. We need your power in our lives. We need your joy. We need your perspective. Lord, also we... We want to be mature kids who appreciate what you've sacrificed. That at the cross, Jesus, you willingly laid down your life. You endured torture. You endured rejection. You endured physical abuse. You endured emotional, spiritual, and physical agony because you'd rather be with us than live in heaven without us. And so, God, today we reach out our hand and we put it on yours. We just say thank you for your sacrifice. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for giving us eternal life. Thank you for giving us freedom from sin in this life. Thank you for the peace that we can have despite our circumstances, a supernatural peace. Thank you for the joy. Thank you for the wisdom when we seek you for direction. Thank you for the church family you've put around us that loves us. Thank you for the freedom to worship you. Thank you for the food in our stomachs, the air in our lungs, the hope in our hearts. Lord, we thank you today. God, if there's anyone here who doesn't know that they've trusted in you for their salvation, I pray that today would be the day that they believe in you.